Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. I've been hearing through the grapevine that you've done a VIP trip to France last week. Is that true? Yes, it is. I was in Alsace and very interesting stuff to see there. Highly recommended. But I can't reveal the name of the VIP and his wife who I was with. (laughs) Not even a hint. Not even a hint, (laughs) other than saying American. Right. Not the president, I take it. I've probably seen that in the news. Right, yes, probably. What is Alsace? What, what is there to see there? The main... Uh, There's just so much to see. A lot of history there. It was possibly one of the very, very few regions in the whole of Europe that Jews lived in continuously from the 11th century down to today. So, and yes. there's still a Jewish community functioning. All over Alsace, yeah. There's probably somewhere between sixteen and 20,000 Jews just in Strasbourg. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, welcome back to the final part of the series on political intrigues. This week we are talking about London. Yes. So by the mid-1600s, the need for a place of refuge for Jews was even more pressing than it had been a hundred years earlier. France, Spain, Portugal were still closed to them. Eastern Europe, particularly Poland and the Ukraine, had suffered from the Khmelnytsky massacres in 1648, which was also the year that the destructive 30-year war ended um, in Germany and Central Europe. And then the conquest of Brazil by Portugal, the reconquest in 1654, meant that even in the new world, the Jews weren't safe, which makes the re-establishment of the Jewish community in London after a 360-year gap more understandable. Now, we know the Jews got back in, so this week isn't a suspense story, but we really need to understand the why and the how. And one critical factor is completely overlooked, it's almost unknown, because we assume that Rabbi Nasher ben Yisrael convinced Oliver Cromwell to take the Jews back in, although actually he failed, and he died heartbroken over this, except that in a truly remarkable act of Hashkocha, this failure is what allowed the return of the Jews to happen. Had he, in fact, succeeded as he wished, the Jews would have been expelled almost immediately. Sorry to interrupt you. Who was he and how did he come to play this role? Okay, so Rav Menasha was born in 1604 into a Murano family on the island of Madeira off the African coast, which was owned by the Portuguese. And the family fled from there to the safer shores of Amsterdam, which was out of the reach of the Inquisition, uh, because Holland had just welcomed Jews in. 
And at the young age of 18, he becomes the rabbi of Neve Shalom in Amsterdam. He spoke six languages. He wrote Svarim and books, I guess, about the truths of Judaism. And these were read by Jews and non-Jews, including one called A Letter in Answer to Certain Questions. And you had people like Queen Henrietta Maria who came to his shul to hear him speak. In 1628, he opened the first Jewish printing press in Amsterdam, and his books were printed there in in Hebrew, in Latin, in Spanish. And famously, one was a commentary on the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, which was illustrated with four drawings from the famous Dutch artist, the painter Rembrandt, whom he knew. Drawings made for the book. Yes, specifically, in fact, about Yaakov in his dream and the positioning of Yaakov on the ladder. It's quite interesting. And he became a spokesman for the Jewish people. He was in touch with statesmen and scholars across Europe about Jews and Judaism. And he remained particularly concerned about the fate of Jews in Europe. And at this point, that various intersecting events take place. In 1648, there's a book published in England which made the claim that only if the Jews are brought back to England would the English people escape punishment for their uh, cruel treatment and expulsion of the Jews in 1290. Then the following year, Rav Menasha published Mikveh Yisrael, Hope of Israel, in which he wrote that the Jews needed to be spread out to the ends of the earth, England, before they could be redeemed, which is a, a quote from Daniel. And his book, having been printed in Dutch and Latin, went into three editions back then that is you know sort of a a bestseller and he was besieged with correspondence much of it from england and from the tone of the letters rav menasha felt it was possible to make a direct approach to cromwell for the readmission of the jews after 360 years and get support from influential non-jews in england that he had corresponded with although ironically many who were in favor of the admittance of Jews to England did so in the conviction that these Jews would subsequently be converted to Christianity, especially the group called the Millenarians, which was a movement that was pro-Jewish but believed that the second coming required Jewish conversion and their return to the Holy Land. It's fascinating how much dependent on religion back in the day. Yes, the religious side of debate was very strong. Indeed, when Cromwell took over in England and beheaded Charles I, the king said that you don't have the right to put me on trial because I am here with the grace of God. So, you know, religion played an enormous role. Hmm. But beyond the religious side, there were other factors. Economically, in 1651, the English Parliament ruled 
that any produce brought from the British Empire, Africa, America, can only be transported in ships owned by Englishmen. And all European products had to be imported in English ships. The purpose behind this was to give England commercial supremacy over Holland. Uh, I guess you could call it an early type of Brexit. Hmm. But the act couldn't succeed unless England had a large supply of capital and of business entrepreneurs, a category into which the Jews or and the Murano Jews fitted perfectly. Now, there were Jews living in England at the time, even though all Jews were expelled in 1290. These were not open Jews. There was no external sign of Jewish life at all. But it was easier to be a Murano in England because it was a Protestant country. That's not true all the way through, by the way. I mean, Mary, Queen of Scots, famously was Catholic. But for most of the time post-Henry VIII, that was true. And by 1640, there were 20 Jewish or Jew ish families in London living as new Christians. Most of them had come from France or the Canary Islands, and one in particular, Antonio Carvajal, who would become president of the Cahilla when it was officially allowed to be open in London. He was a native of Portugal who had moved to Rouen in France, and he was there in secret and hiding, basically. But this Jewish community was denounced in 1632, so he fled to London. And at the time, obviously, you couldn't track people like you can today. So when he gets to London, no one knows where he's from. No one knows that you know he'd been outed as a Jew. And he becomes a merchant, a well-known merchant. I mean, he's Jewish after all. He imports munitions and he is a grain contractor for the English Parliament during the Civil War. And he was informed upon to the authorities in 1645 for not attending church. In other words, openly he's living as a Christian. But the House of Lords dropped proceedings at the request of some of London's more prominent merchants. And alongside these new Christians, there were some Jewish families who had come from Germany, where actually they had been living openly as Jews, they were Ashkenazim, and they came for purely financial reasons. And in fact, once they settled in London, they had to act as Christians and participate in the occasional mass. One call that a very religious move. Well, for some people, I guess money speaks very loudly. <laughs> Money's a religion of sorts. Yep. So this group of Jews, they know of each other and they're all living under the radar, so to speak. But in 1655, Cromwell gave denization to Carvajal, which is, he allowed him to become, so to speak, a permanent resident, which is a halfway house to becoming an actual citizen. And that allowed him to buy property, which was unheard of for Jews in most of Western Europe. And when Cromwell opens Parliament, he announced that God will bring the Jews home to their station from the Isles of the Sea. And at this point, uh, Rav Nasher ben Israel travels to England. It's uh, September 
1655. He is accompanied by three other local rabbonim, including Rav Yaakov Sasportas, who would eventually become the first chief rabbi of London's Jewry. And in preparation for this long-anticipated act of finding a safe shore for Jews, he wrote to Kehillus across Europe asking for their prayers for his success. And he comes as a guest of Cromwell and makes the acquaintance of the local Jews and almost certainly prays with them on Rosh Hashanah of 1655, which would have been the first minion attended by practicing Jews in England in 350 years, so quite a milestone. And then on the 13th of November, he goes to Whitehall and he submits a petition on behalf of the Hebrew nation, which asked for the following for the Jews. Public synagogues in England, a Jewish cemetery to be able to trade freely, to be allowed to have the rabbis settle internal disputes, in other words, according to halacha and Torah law, and to revoke all the existing laws against the Jewish nation so they could remain in England under the protection of the law. And after this petition, a national conference is summoned, including some of the most uh, prominent lawyers, clergymen, merchants in the country, and Cromwell's motive for doing this was practical. He wanted competition, maritime competition with the Dutch, for which he needed the, you know, the rich Jews of Amsterdam. He also believed that Jews could be used to bring him foreign intelligence. You know, they'd hear it in the mikvah. <laughs> and they had a network. Now, what is astonishing is that this conference found that there was no law that actually forbade the Jews from living in England because it had been a royal decree rather than the law of the land. And now that there's no king, they just chopped his head off, <laughs> they could safely ignore this idea. But they were unable to decide the conditions for resettlement. The, the merchants were worried that Jews would dominate certain areas of trade. The clergy were worried that um, Judaism in public in a Christian state was simply blasphemy and that Jews would seduce Christians from their faith and Christian children would be murdered for ritual purposes, all of the, you know, the old accusations. So they proposed that Jews live only in non-commercial towns and that they would not be allowed to employ Christian servants, um, but that Jews would not be able to stop efforts to convert them to Christianity, nor would Jews be able to print anything in English which was against Christianity. Sounds pretty harsh. Well, to a great extent, that was actually the existing state of affairs in most European countries at the time. And it would have allowed the Jews a, a legal foothold in a country that they had been banned from. But Cromwell realizes that the conference is not going the direction that he wanted. So he ended it without any decisions being made. It was a sort of limbo land. And then in March of 1566, there is drama as a result of the Anglo-Spanish War. 
Antonio Robles was a wealthy new Christian merchant, originally from Portugal, and his merchandise is suddenly confiscated on an order from the Privy Council because he has Spanish connections and therefore he is an enemy of England living in England. So at this point, Robles abandons the pretense of being a Catholic and he appeals directly to Cromwell as the protector of the uh, afflicted ones. And he asks him for the return of his property and says, you know, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm a Jew and uh, it's true I'm uncircumcised and I've attended Catholic mass and church, but I'm Jewish and this is a very high stakes gamble. But Cromwell responded positively, and in mid-May, his ships, his merchandise, and his property, he's a wealthy guy, are all restored to him on the grounds that he was a Jew of the Hebrew nation. So you're saying that four centuries of history had suddenly become meaningless? Yes. I mean, Cromwell allowed the uh, settlement of the Jews who were in England without resorting to, to Parliament, to official channels. And as a result, six members of the, the former new Christian community in London petitioned Cromwell for permission to gather to worship. Now, we have to understand, they didn't petition for the right of readmission of Jews to England. They just asked for a favor for those already in the country, not to repeal any laws, but just for the protector for Cromwell to give a written license on two matters worship and burial, both to take place on private land, but are molested. And Carvajal signs a lease for a building on Creechurch Lane, where services commence in January 1657, and will continue until the building of the Bevis Marx synagogue in 1701. And to, to Carvajal and others in London, this outcome was ideal. They were refugees from the Inquisition and happy to live openly as Jews without disturbance, have their houses free of uh, molestation. And they acknowledged that it wouldn't and couldn't have happened without Rabbanasha ben Israel, especially the fact, the, the discovery, that there was no real legislation that forbade Jews from settling in England, but they weren't going to take it any further. But he wanted much more than that, didn't he? Very much more. His whole concern was for the thousands of Murano Jews on the European mainland, and he therefore strongly disagreed with this idea of being satisfied with a status of unofficial acceptance. Uh, all it meant was that the current Jews in London would be allowed to live unhindered from any interference from the government or the church, but there would be no wave of Jewish immigration. A few more Jews would get into England, but that was far from what he'd set out to do. And he, you know, he argues his case that the law should be changed, but he is outnumbered and isolated and then struggles with a long period of illness, probably brought on by his concern for the Jews in Europe, which was followed by the death of his son in 1657 in London. So he returns to Holland with his son's coffin. And before he could arrive in Amsterdam, he died in the house of his brother at Middelburg. He's a person who was Mason Nefesh for Klal Yisrael. He gave it his all. 
And in fact, he died penniless. And even the 14 written works that he left in manuscript form disappeared after his death. His widow was left in such poverty that she was unable to even pay for his funeral. He's buried nowadays in Alderkerk, just outside Amsterdam. It's a very tragic ending. Yes. How do we have that book with the paintings? That was already printed earlier. That was printed in, in his lifetime. Yes, very much so. But what is unknown to either of sort of the two parties to the debate of the Jewish parties is that the very informality of this new arrangement would save the Jewish community from expulsion because Oliver Cromwell dies and Charles II comes back into power. He returns to England in 1660 and the monarchy is restored and there are anti-Semitic voices asking for the expulsion of the Jews. And the Lord Mayor of London asks Charles II to expel the Jews and close the door after them. Beyond that, the instigators of the Civil War were arrested. Many of them were sentenced to death. And the most important part, all of Cromwell's legislation over the past decade was nullified or actually reversed. So it's a bit sort of, you know, Biden versus Trump. I was just thinking that. Legislation, right? And therefore, it was to be expected that the sort of recent good fortune of the Jews would suffer a total setback. However, because there was no official legislation made about the Jews under Cromwell, Parliament never voted on the matter. The senior judges of the country never ruled. So there was nothing which could be legally reversed in Parliament. That's incredible. And that was a true act of Hashkacha Protis. Furthermore, Charles II had been repeatedly assisted by Jews in Holland during his years of exile and was now prepared to reward the Jews of England. And he issues a written statement that no measures would be initiated against them during his lifetime. And he, and I quote, they need feel no trepidation inasmuch as he himself would be their advocate and assist them with all his power, which Jacob Sesportus sent on to the Rov of Rotterdam and adds the words, Baruch Hashem. Well, so it seems that without Rabbi Nash's input, it's highly unlikely that Jews would never have been allowed entry into England. Yes, I mean, perhaps the way to put it is that if the solution of the Jewish question at the end of 1656 wasn't completely satisfactory, that is what gave it its real strength. Right. In the 1660s, Jews were a novelty. When the famous historian, the diarist Samuel Pepys attended services in the synagogue on October 14, 1653, out of curiosity, he was very approving of the prayer said for the king, but noted the disorder and laughing during the service. But he happened to have visited either on Simchas Torah or the night thereafter. This was actually his second visit because he'd been there four years earlier for the eulogy for Carvayal on the 3rd of December 1659. And then in 1681 and again in 1685, the future Queen Anne visited the synagogue. Wow. What about the other request, the Beis HaKvaras? 
So initially the cemetery had to be on leased land because there was no legislation that allowed religious burial for non-Christians. So the community acquires a lease in Mile End in 1657. So Mile End, which nowadays is in the centre of London, was a hamlet uh, situated, as its name indicates, a mile from London. <laughs> um, the road from London to there was a uh, sort of a narrow dirt track and it was surrounded by fields. Their first lease was for 14 years, which we find from an entry in the shawl accounts of 1670 that, that at the time they still had 15 months to run. The rent was £10, which was about 20 times the amount that this small plot of land should have gone for, which indicates that the owners knew the purpose for which the land was required and knew basically, therefore, the Jews had no choice. So Carvajal had to pay a lot of money to get it. It's not the first time in our history we've overpaid for a burial. Right, right, except that there officially, at least, Avram was getting in perpetuity. <laughs> and here, the owners also knew that the Jews weren't going to give up the land in 14 years either. But it was worth their while. It was only a mile from the eastern boundary of the city where most of them lived. It was close to the, the Great Road, the main road from London but sufficiently far away to be hidden from it. And by 1660, it contained five uh, graves, five tombstones, and it survives as the oldest Jewish cemetery in England today. It's got to be one of the more expensive cemeteries in the world. Well, it's nowadays half of it is the back of Queen Mary University, whose permission you have to ask in order to visit. But uh, there are some people of note who are there. Wow. And then in 1665, there's the outbreak of the Great Plague in London. The Jews were actually largely unaffected, but we do find five or so unmarked graves, which are likely to be from that period. And then the next year, in 1666, there is the Great Fire. And the Kehila was fortunate once again because the bulk of the Jewish area escaped serious damage. Now... Having said that, so they've got their cemetery, it was not used as heavily as could be expected for several reasons. Some of them wanted to be buried near their spouses and families in the Christian cemeteries that had already been used for this purpose. For others, there was a more commercial reason. Whereas a person a Jew now living sort of openly as a Jew might attend prayers in the shul behind these triple doors under his real Jewish name and continue to trade outside of the shul in his non-Jewish name. And he would hope that the no inquisition spy would sort of figure it out. And that way his relatives and his property in Spain would remain safe because they would never link the two together. And if by any chance this sort of spy penetrated to the, you know, the Beta Chaim and saw a gravestone with the man's synagogue name, he wouldn't be any the wiser. But nothing would explain in the eyes of Portuguese Christians in London the fact that this individual, if he dies, is not buried with ceremony in a place where Catholics might expect to find him. And so you find that, for instance, in November 1659, 
when there were 10 burials, four were Ashkenazim, who were a tiny percentage, because they had nothing to fear from the Inquisition. So they were using the cemetery. Later on, when you know the Jews had lived for some time in England, had lost their associations with Spain and Spanish relatives because any non-conforming Moranos had drifted away, then the position was very different. Wow. What happened afterwards? Well, what happens is that, in a very British way, things sort of happen without a fuss, without anything Ceremony. happening. Yes, yeah. without happening in a way that would make waves. So, over the years, the legal and political standing of the Jews was established. In 1667, the Jews were allowed to swear on the Old Testament when they were giving evidence in court. In 1677, a Jew was allowed to change the time of his court appearance so that he wouldn't appear on a Saturday. And there were two attempts to still evict the Jews, one in 1673 with Charles II and one in 1685 with his brother James II, and both were rejected by the king in each case. And this drew a line under their readmission. It was now the thing that England had gone for, still without any official legislation as such. Now, things would change in the 1700s, mid-1700s particularly, but that's for another day. Wow. So at this point of time, in the mid-1600s, was England one of the best places in the world for Jews to be living? I guess in many ways the answer is yes, and it would be a place that Jews could live free of fear, but no one necessarily knew that at the time. But I guess, yeah, in many ways that would be correct, yeah. Well, okay, that brings political intrigues to an end. Next week is a new series, and I know you hate to uh, tell us what it's about before and ruin the surprise, but... The topic is time. So, disputes, calendars, and one about the Holocaust for Asara Batavis. So another three-part series. Thank you very much. We're looking forward. As usual, any feedback, any questions, any comments, please email podcasts at jle.org.uk. Thank you very much, Rabbi Hirsch. Thank you. Thank you.